0: Sun. You can hear their hearts beating Can keep those California Indians down. Hello everyone, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. On today's program, From Here to There past and present settler colonial violence in native american nations to palestine we'll hear an in-depth interview from a leading palestinian american scholar and activist on the parallels of settler colonialism between what is now the legacy of the united states to that of palestine all that and more here on american indian airwaves you can hear when the moon shines
1: the lone foo in the black of the night you can hear, you can hear the whisper in the valley mm-hmm.
0: And you know when come a blows to the bar. From here to there, past and present, settler colonial violence in Native American nations in Palestine, here on American Indian Airwaves. For the hour, I am joined by executive producer and co-host of American Indian Airwaves, Marcus Lopez, as we have the honor and pleasure to interview Dr. Rashid Khalidi, who is the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies in the History Department at Columbia University, And is the editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies. In addition, he was the president of the Middle East Studies Association and an advisor to the Palestinian delegation to the Madrid and Washington Arab-Israeli peace negotiations from October 1991 until June 1993. He is the author of over ten publications, including his most recent book titled. The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, 1917-2017. to He joins us for the hour to discuss the Israeli war on Palestine, the recent events in Gaza and the West Bank, the legacy and parallels of settler colonial violence perpetrated against Palestine and its peoples, and draws those parallels to the violent settler colonial legacy here in what is now called the United States and its impacts on Native American nations and how the past connects to the present. We begin today's interview with the question of what is settler colonialism?
2: I mean, settler colonialism is pretty easy to discern. It's essentially overseas european uh, export of populations to take the place of indigenous populations you know there's regular colonialism where europeans would go overseas and rule over other countries but not export their populations to that countries and try and replace the existing indigenous populations so you know india was ruled as a colony it wasn't a separate colony the english didn't send english people to settle in um in India, which they did in, obviously, uh, Turtle Island, North America, which they did in Australasia, what is now Australia and New Zealand, which they did actually earlier on in, in Ireland. In all of those cases, what you're talking about is overseas European expansion, but also the settling of populations in an attempt to replace, as much as possible, the indigenous population. That's, that's settler colonialism. It's a, phenom- a post-1492 uh, European colonial phenomenon. And it's part of this wave of, of colonial expansion of, of these European countries.
1: Thank you very much. Now the other one is, how would you define
2: Zionism? Mm-hmm. Well, Zionism has multiple aspects to it. Um, on the one hand, uh, it is an Eastern European, uh, it, let me put it this way, it's a nationalist movement among Jews, uh, mainly in Eastern Europe, in response to persecution and anti-Semitism. It's uh, an ideology which says that Jews cannot live uh, among non-Jews, and that they should re that they should constitute or reconstitute, in their view, a, a, nas- a national existence in uh, some other part of the world. Eventually, it was decided that that part of the world should be Palestine, and it, so that's one aspect of it. Or one of uh, those are two aspects of it. One one is this I- the development of national ideas in the late nineteenth century among some Jews, a minority, a tiny actually minority of Jews originally. Um, And the other uh, is is that this is, in part at least, a reaction to European persecution and anti-Semitism of Jews, which is historic. It goes back millennia. I mean, it goes back, you know, all of the Jewish population of England is kicked out in the 12th century. All the Jewish population of France is kicked out in the 13th century. All of the Jewish population of Spain and Portugal are kicked out at the end of of the 15th century. So this is historic persecution, and this is, in part, a response to that. The third aspect of it, is a collaboration with European imperial powers and adoption of settler colonial methods. In other words, Zionism is not just an attempt to see the Jews as a modern national entity, and it's not just a response to persecution and anti-Semitism in in Europe. It's also an attempt to take over a land that was already inhabited by a native indigenous population, the Palestinian Arab population, uh, by European settlers with the backing of an imperial power. it's, it's there, In that sense, it's a settler colonial uh, project uh, like uh, many others and, and in some ways different from the others. Thank you very much. I uh, want to get
1: that people can have an understanding of that. And I want to turn now quickly to your book, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. We, you said on the book and you started... Fascinating reading because it's a declaration of maneuverability of imperialists, particularly the British. But I think most of all, especially the importance, of the most important of them were the Palestine integral part of the Ottoman Empire, most mm-hmm. gravely in this inhabitants by others. And then later on, you say, the um, with uh, in the name of God, let Palestine be left alone this notion of eighteen ninety eight uh, letter to the Jewish head of the new Zionist movement about their going into that area by Yusuf Dia and right. talk about number one, this phenomenal aspect of like you said, the book started in nineteen seventeen or even before that, but yet the the started that Yusuf and your relatives talked about that notion of a declaration by Europeans,
2: and especially the British.
1: Give us a notion of a little bit of overview of this book.
2: What I was trying to do with this book is to dispute and to basically um, refute a notion or many notions about what has been going on in Palestine uh, uh, ever since the late 19th century. There are all kinds of images that this has been going on since time immemorial. That Arabs and Jews have always been fighting. That the, this is simply a desire to, on the part of Arabs, for reasons of anti-Semitism or some other reason, to thwart the the uh, inalienable rights of the Jewish people to self-determination and so on and so forth. What I should try and show in this book is that, in fact, this this all of this suffering has essentially been framed by the intervention of European imperialism, the British in particular, in 1917 when they occupy Palestine and issue the Balfour Declaration. Mm. Uh, it's been framed by the rise of nationalism among Arabs and among Jews. And it's been framed by the settler colonial methodology uh, that the Zionist project adopted in order to attempt to turn Palestine from an Arab country into a majority Jewish country. And this entailed what i describe as a war on the Palestinians, uh, sometimes waged by the British, uh, often waged uh, by the State of Israel, uh, sometimes waged by other powers against the Palestinian people in order to force them to relinquish their rights in their ancestral homeland. So I see this as a multi-phase war. Going back to 1917, obviously Zionism goes back earlier, Arab nationalism, Palestinian nationalism goes back a bit earlier. But it becomes a war the moment that Britain intervenes the moment the britain occupy occupies palestine the moment uh that the british issue the balfour declaration which says that there's essentially only one people in palestine with national rights which is the jewish people and which completely ignores the overwhelming palestinian indigenous majority 95 percent of the population at the time they're never mentioned by name in the balfour declaration or in the mandate for palestine that the british get from the league of nations on the basis of which they rule palestine up until 1948 so the book starts, as you mentioned, with a letter that was sent by an, a relative of mine, a great-great-great uncle, to the leader of the Zionist movement uh, at that time, Theodore Herzl, in which he tells him that Palestinians, uh, Muslims and Jews, he says, uh, are of course cousins. You know, We're all children of Abraham, he says. And we recognize the suffering of the Jewish people, we recognize your connection to this land. But, he says, you're attempting to settle here and to take this country over is going, to, is going to cause problems because there's a population here that will refuse to be supplanted, the Palestinian-Arab population, the overwhelming majority of the population at the time. And he says, he ends, he ends that part of the letter by saying, for the sake of God, uh, leave Palestine alone. Um, and so that's, 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 what you were, that's what you were referring to, to, to there.
1: Thank you very much. And the book goes on to the,
2: the declarations, the first declaration
1: of war, third, fourth, 5th Declaration, 6th Declaration, and in a sense of this notion of a continual effort, like war, you said, of first the European powers and secondly by the State of Israel. Uh, if you were trying to explain the book and this particular declarations, what do you see as, as the main
2: point you want to get across to the reader? Well, one of the points to get across to the reader Is that contrary to the image of Israel as a tiny little isolated beleaguered, you know, outpost in a sea of hostile Arabs? These are images that we get out of, you know, that we can that that parallel the images that you have in in American film westerns of isolated settlers surrounded by hostile natives. Uh, There's there's a playing on that imagery on the part of Zionists, especially in their propaganda directed at the United States. Um, Instead of that, which is a false image, of course. What you have, in fact, is resistance to an attempt to take over the country by these intruders, by these settlers, by these Europeans uh, on the part of a native population. And obviously this should be familiar to any, any indigenous person in the United States or in Canada or in Australia or in, or in New Zealand. Um, the same kind of processes were taking place uh, here and in Australia and New Zealand as were taking place in Palestine. The fact that Jews had a claim or felt they had a claim, the fact that uh, Jews were being persecuted in Europe is obviously relevant, it's germane. But that's, that has been centered, that has been described as the only thing that's important. The fact that Palestinians were simply saying, you can't take over our country and we will resist that, has always been elided. So I, I'm trying to frame this as a war against the Palestinians by overwhelmingly superior forces. It's not tiny, beleaguered little Israel, it's powerful Israel, supported by the greatest world powers of the age. The British Empire controlled a quarter of the globe, at the time that they occupied Palestine in 1917. And they were, in fact, in fact, expanding their empire at that time. They were the victor of World War I. They had armies that were fighting all over the world at the time. And the, getting the support of, of Great Britain uh, was an enormous victory for the Zionists. And it, they were the ones who, in fact, ensured the establishment of what be, later on became the State of Israel, through helping to build up the institutions, the military forces, uh, the, the the structures, the diplomatic uh, uh, capacities of what was later on to become the State of Israel. So so having the British on your side means you're, you have the big battalions on your side. It means you, you're not a tiny isolate, you're, it, it, obviously you're a small group, you're a minority at the time, in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s. but uh you have enormous support. Later on, they come to have the support of the two great superpowers after World War II. Uh, uh the the United States and the Soviet Union are supportive of the state of Israel. They force a resolution that gives most of Palestine uh to uh, a Jewish state in 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 the United Nations in 1947. They arm the state of Israel. They recognize the state of Israel and they back it uh against the Palestinians and later on against the Arab states. So, I'm trying to 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 shatter this entirely false image, uh, 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 that in fact it is, it is the, the Palestinians and the Arabs who are the overwhelmingly powerful uh, party, and that Israel is a tiny little beleaguered state. In fact, Israel is a superpower, which has never lost a war, a regional superpower, Israel is a nuclear power. Israel has the United States at its back, I mean we can see this in the Gaza war, the 120 millimeter tank shells, artillery shells, the, uh, the 155 millimeter artillery shells are being shipped by the United States to enable Israel to fight this war. They can't fight without that stuff. They can't fight without replacements for their Apache helicopters. The, the, the name is interesting, by the way. Yes. They can't fight without their F-15s, their F-16s, their F-35s. All of this is American-supplied equipment and, and ammunition. Uh, Israel is fighting a war, but America is in that trench alongside Israel fighting the Palestinians. And that's always been the case. There's always been an external patron, an imperial power, a great power, that meant that the balance was always tipped in favor of the Zionist Project early on and later on in the state of Israel.
0: And we want to remind listeners, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Palestinian scholar and activist Dr. Rashid Khalidi on From Here to There, Past and Present, the legacy of settler colonial violence perpetrated against Native American nations to Israelis' occupation and war on Palestine. And now, back to the interview. Thank you for that. Within the
1: book, it goes intertwined within many aspects of it. I don't want to cover that in particular. There's so much to cover in this book. But you said in particular that Gaza was the only rarely permitted Gaza was, in effect, turned into an open-air prison. Right. Where, in 2018, at least 53% of some 2 million Palestinians Live in the street of poverty, and you go and the litany of oppression, of the degradation of a people's. Within that, that set up the conditions for continual uh, resistance of the people. And what about today? Your particular projections of the end of the book. What about today? What is going on from your vantage point?
2: I mean, we, we barely have an hour for this. <laughs> and it's, a, it's not a, we're not talking about an easily, an easily explained situation. Just very briefly. First of all, most of the people in the Gaza Strip are, are descendants of refugees driven from their homes by Israel in 1948 from the parts, the, the areas that now form southern Israel. Uh, cities like uh, As- Askalan, which becomes Ashkelon, uh, uh, Bir Seba, which becomes Beersheba. Uh, 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 Asdud, which becomes Ashdod, are uh, Palestinian cities, and they're Palestinian towns and villages, all of which are emptied of their populations by the Israeli army in the war of 1948. And those people are driven into what becomes the Gaza Strip. They are governed by Israel, by Egypt for a while under military government, uh, uh, and then later on in 67, Israel occupies the Gaza Strip as part of its occupation of the West Bank and East Jerusalem and the Sinai Peninsula and the Golan Heights. And from that moment until today, the lives of the Gazans are are completely controlled by Israel. Israel controls the population registry, Israel controls entry and exit into Gaza, Israel uh, basically enters Gaza whenever it chooses, even after Israel withdrew its settlers that it had planted in Gaza after 1967, when it did that in 2005 and withdrew its military forces from Gaza, it continued to enter into Gaza and continued to control Gaza from without. The airspace is controlled by Israel. The sea uh, uh, is controlled by Israel. Fishermen can only go out a couple couple of kilometers, after which the Israelis will sink their fishing boats. Um, Entry and exit is controlled by Israel. Import and export is controlled by Israel. What communications they can have with the outside world. So it's an occupation at a distance has been the situation um, since 2005. And that occupation has turned into a siege uh, over the past 19 years. Uh, uh, Fences, walls, and so on and so forth, such that most of the population of Gaza, which is under 20 years old, uh, under 18 years old, actually, have never been allowed to leave the Gaza Strip. So this area of 20 miles by 5 miles has become, in effect, an open-air prison um, in some respects. And that's the background to what happens uh, on the 7th of October. And from an Israeli perspective, everybody, they want to start everything is on the 7th of October. There's this horrific attack uh, by Hamas, which leads to an enormous number of casualties among Israeli civilians, probably the largest Israeli civilian casualty toll since the 1948 war. Um, in fact, undoubtedly the highest Israeli civilian casualty toll. Uh, there are also hundreds of soldiers and security personnel who are killed. Um, in addition to the about 800 Israeli civilians. So this is a huge shock to Israel and Israelis want to focus only on that and say this is an atrocity, this is a massacre, this is in addition to that, of course, a couple of hundred, over 200 Israelis are taken hostage or captured and taken into, into the Gaza Strip, and about half of them are still uh, being held there as hostages after about half of them were released back in November in, a, in an exchange of hostages for Palestinian prisoners. So the situation that Israel would like us to focus on, is the horrors of what happened on the 7th of October, the attacks on on the Israeli military, but more importantly, the attacks on Israeli civilian settlements. And that is an undoubtedly important part of the picture, and the traumatic impact of it is undeniable, and the horrors are, we, we know about some of them now, and there are perhaps others we'll learn about. What nobody wants to talk about is what Israel has done since then, which is to kill about Almost 30,000 Palestinians, the overwhelming majority of whom are civilians. Over 11,000 of them are children. So 800 Israeli civilians were killed, which is horrific. 28,000 Palestinians have been killed. Again, the overwhelming majority of them civilians, probably 80% of them civilians. There are 8,000 people, 7,000 people missing. Undoubtedly, almost all of them are buried under the rubble of their homes. Uh, The Israeli bombardment of Gaza and the the nature of of the war that it's waged in Gaza has destroyed maybe 30% of the structures in Gaza, including almost all of the infrastructure, the water purification plants, the sewage plants the hospitals, the universities, the libraries. All of these things have been systematically destroyed, not by accident and not in combat. Some of them were the, the demolition charges were placed under them and they were just destroyed. So there's been a, a, a what, what, what South Africa, in its submission to the International Court of Justice, has described, described as a potential case of genocide. Certainly what you've had is a systematic attack, not just on the population, but on the infrastructure. Not only have these have maybe 68 or 70,000 people been wounded and over 30,000 people been killed, which is 4.5% of the population of the Gaza Strip. Most of the population have been driven from their homes again and again and again, driven from the north to the center, driven from the center to the south, driven from one part of the southern part of the Gaza Strip to another. Uh, there's an attempt now to empty the the area they were forced into uh, by Israel, the Rafah area. So you have had multiple repeated dislocations. We're not talking about anything as long as the Trail of Tears. We're not talking about anything as long as the forced expulsion of populations across the North American continent. But we're talking about, within this small space, people being forced to move again and again and again, at gunpoint and as a result of bombardments. Um, so that's the situation today. There is an enormous humanitarian catastrophe uh, underway, supported by this country, it should be said supported systematically by the United States, which refuses to insist that Israel uh, uh, accept a uh, binding and lasting ceasefire, which refuses to stop shipping the weapons with which Israel is doing this and the ammunition with which Israel is doing this.
0: Ashid, I have a question for you in listening um, to you and what's been happening since October 7th. And I was wondering if we could Make uh, the connections back to you know, you know. I'm thinking of the 30s and obviously up into the 1940s, and you know, I just think about Palestinian resistance to to British uh, occupation and you know the collusion with France and the was it the Sykes-Picot Treaty of 1916, but uh, the labor resistance to British occupation in 1936, but. But also the establishment of kibbutz, these military outposts into Palestine and how that you know, structures, uh, settler colonialism, if you will. And I'm thinking of, you know, historically here, colonists, you know, creating or establishing forts in indigenous people's lands. And some of these forts today went on to become cities like Detroit. But some of these forts are war camps or prisoner of war camps like Pine Ridge, which is known as uh, War Camp, I think, 334. And Talk, take us back to that time period because mm-hmm. the these military outposts, right, really uh structure settler colonialism in violent ways that dispossess indigenous Palestinians of their traditional homelands, but it also contributes to the conditions that Palestinians live under in Gaza exactly. and the West Bank before, you know, October seventh of two thousand twenty three.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, the the resonances and the echoes are are really very striking. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of these outposts are established in the 20s and the 30s. Tower and stockade. I mean, if you look at, again, I I go back to these horrific Westerns. Mm -hmm. If you look at the way in which the expansion of settler colonialism into the American West is portrayed, you will see towers and stockades. Mm -hmm. And you look at pictures of the early, of the early Zionist settlements um, in, the, in the 20s and the 30s, and they're, it's exa- they're exactly the same structures, towers and stockades, uh, in the 20th century variant. There's also barbed wire. But uh, you, you are talking about very similar processes in some ways. Mm. You're talking about a militarized expansion westward, in the case of, our, of this country, and a militarized expansion uh, into lands uh, that, uh, in, in, in Palestine uh, by groups of what they call pioneers. Again, the, the resonances are, and that's a, that's a term that's still in use in Israel, people are described as pioneers, they're pioneering their way uh, into a hostile territory. So the resonances are enormous and it, it, you don't have the cavalry, you don't have the uh, uh, cavalry as you have in the, in, in the American case. Uh, you have the British Army in the 20s and the 30s uh, doing the dirty work uh, for the settlers, who also are armed. They have their own military. Mil- the settlers themselves are armed, but it's the, it's the might of the British Army that ultimately prevails in the 1930s when the Palestinians realize what's happening and finally stop trying to negotiate with the British and, and first of all launch a great general strike in 1936 and then launch an armed uprising uh, against the British, uh, which lasts for three years. About 14, 15, 60 we don't know the exact point, maybe 15 to 17% of the adult male Palestinian population are killed, wounded, uh, imprisoned, or exiled by the British in crushing this revolt. Hmm. 15 to 17% of adult males are killed, wounded, imprisoned, or exiled by the British as they crush this enormous revolt, one of the greatest interwar anti-colonial revolts internationally in that, in that period. And again, the, 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 the similarities are chilling. Uh, to you know, the great campaigns carried out by the U.S. military in support of settler colonialism uh, all over uh, the, this this continent.
0: I think of um, in not only in the militarization of of Palestine in the '30s, but even leading up to the '40s, and but I also think of how you know colonists. Treat the land um, in terms of uh, when it comes to surveying, if you will, and I'm being uh, sanitized in the in the terminology here. Surveying the lands and determining whether or not. Uh, Palestinians can prove title to the land. And that reminds me of the colonial legacy here with the doctrine of discovery and doctrine of dominion, you know, and colonists treating the lands here or the Western Hemisphere, you know, as Terra Nullius and this, you know, giant Tableau Rousseau, this empty slate to colonize. But that becomes a, a tool, a colonial tool to dispossess indigenous peoples of the land. But it structures an apartheid system that Israel has already been found or recognized as being guilty of the crime of apartheid in part due to this kind of militarized allotment system that leads mm-hmm. up to the conditions of Palestinians that have lived under uh, for decades now. Your, right. th- your thoughts.
2: Well, in, in the case of Palestine, uh, one of the most important tools uh, that was used to implant the Zionist project in Palestine mm-hmm. was an alliance with the British, which enabled them to construct the legal means whereby land could legal quote unquote means whereby land could be alienated. Yeah. One of the one of the terms of the mandate that the British are given by the League of Nations is that they're supposed to encourage land purchase, and one of the things that that involves is overriding traditional collective control of land with uh, uh, notions western notions of private property which then enabled the quote purchase of land and the dispossession of the people who ac- actually worked it so it, it it went through very different it went through very different means mm. but the end was the same the the, the project always involved land and demography mm. taking control of the land and changing the demography and it's done in different ways by each, each uh, settler-colonial project. In the case of Ireland, it was done in one way. In the case of Algeria, it was done in another way. In the case of this continent, it was done in several different ways. In the case of Palestine, it was done through quote-unquote legal means, which the British administration, up until 1948, facilitated. And then you had all kinds of expropriations. After the uh, Zionist quote-unquote land purchase, in these unequal, unfair conditions, only enabled them to control 5 or 6% of the land at the time uh, of the 1948 war. The rest of the land was owned by Palestinians or was commonly owned. Uh, And in in the subsequent decades, all kinds of legal subterfuges have been used to take over land that was owned by Palestinians uh, before 1948.
0: And we want to remind listeners, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Palestinian scholar and activist, Dr. Rashid Khalidi, on From Here to There, Past and Present, The Legacy of Settler Colonial Violence Perpetrated Against Native American Nations to Israelis' Occupation and War on Palestine. And now back to the interview.
2: I I could go into the details. I don't think your listeners would really be interested. But most of the land in what is today Israel is in fact, or was in fact, Mm. Arab-owned. You know, on the the cover of my book, there's a picture of my grandfather's house. Mm. Uh, We don't have control of that property. It's a a ruin today Uh, on the outskirts of Jaffa near Tel Aviv. Um, We don't have control of that property. It went into the hands of something called the custodian of absentee property and then into the hands of the Israeli state Mm. through all kinds of quote-unquote legal expropriations of the property of Palestinians who were either driven out or forced to leave or had to, had to flee, or even of Palestinians who stayed in Israel and became Israeli citizens, but who were dispossessed of their land in a variety of quote-unquote legal uh, uh, means. So land is, land is, as in any settler colonial case, in this, in this country and elsewhere, land is, is, is key uh, to that process,
0: and that concludes part one of our two-part interview with Dr. Rashid Khalidi. We're speaking on from here to there, past and present, settler colonial violence in Native American nations to Palestine. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. <laughs> لا ما شفنا الا قهر طلبنا بس حريه نعيش
1: شفنا بس قتل وتهجير حتى نحكي لا ممنوع
2: سجن حدود وسجن بتعبير وذنبو يا طفل الشهيد كان حلمه مستقبل زهيد واللي
0: عايش طفل تاني ما تخلينا ودم الشهيد فداك يا وطني تبلينا وراح ورحل بوزينا وشكون اللي بينا والله ما توحشس اللي شوتني كل يوم بحكولي لي صبر سلاح واخر صبر في غزه اليوم تتعرض للاباده وما كلمتينا من نصر رمشه هذا فلسطيني شاهد منذ تاريخ ولادته وصبر جميلاً العدو سيزل وين امه العربيه حال الوقت لنصر في بال وعد الحق سوف يعطي الفور وانا قلبي فلسطيني على في كل الدنيا بلادي وارضي في كل مكان كل الدنيا بلادي من قديم الزمان الفروق بين حدود كلام على الورق مكتوب أول مكتوب أصبح قيود تم لا
2: أنا أشوف. قتلونه وهجروني وصار الحجر بيدي سلاحي متلبة مبيض وأسود كوفيتي هي زر نجاحي وقف كفن شاي وقف الجر اللي
0: جاي مفتاح البيت عرقة بس دادي ما بتمايل مفتاح البيت قلبي وأنا راجع. We'll ولو it all من الشام بغداني أرض هي وبلادي وكل العرب بتنادي احتلالي عدواني موت طفلي واجدادي اسألني نرهابي وجاي مش من اوكرانيا سوري انو بشرتي مش بيضه سوري لاولادي سوري انو جبتكم على دنيا منقطه ومش عدله سوري الحلم طويل يابا سوري الحمل ثقيل يابا لا سوري على اي سوري
1: ملناش غير انو نشيل يابا هنا الموت حيه سهله بس صعبه الحياه حريه كذابه عالم استبدادي يستقبل ضيوف يستقبل شهداء من سينه الدره القصف المعمداني مباد جماعيه طالوا نساء يموت عزيز ما يبقى
2: ده شهيد نصر مصر جبل ثابت وأنا غاب التفجير يا وزارة انت قادم أكيد اسمه قاهر ذاك الخبيب المشاعر بليد ما شاف أحد من عياله شهيد أرواح ما أنا برجع بالجميع ما أنا بنواصل ندافع نموت بخاف الصعب لطريب شافش منو تشونس خليك يقول صراحة يقطع الصوم بدهم خايف الدولي يحسله كونت خي الدم فارق قبل ما الله ما قدر عشان يشوف ده جي صور شتنقاس في ما
0: the song Rajahin, or in English, We Will Return? The song is a single. By 25 different artists from 11 Middle Eastern and North African countries, the song was released on October 31st of 2023 to raise awareness of the suffering of the Palestinian population amongst Israel's war and occupation of Palestine. In the second half of our program, today here on American Indian Airwaves, we continue with our interview with Dr. Rashid Khalidi, who is the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies in the History Department at Columbia University and is the editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies. He is the author of over 10 publications, including his most recent book, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, a History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, 1917 to 2017. He joins us for the entire hour to discuss Israel's war on Palestine, the recent events in Gaza and the West Bank the legacy of settler colonialism perpetrated against palestine and its peoples and he draws the parallels to the violent settler colonial legacy here in what is now called the united states and its impacts on native american nations and how the past connects to the present and now part 2 of our interview from here to there past and present settler colonial violence in native american nations to palestine
1: You um, stated within the book, especially what Baal al-Mahd summed it up in 47, and then finally you said it moved from a
2: a colonial menace to exclusivist
1: settler colonialism. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, when you take over a country that has an Arab majority, which is what was the case in which is the situation in 1948, and you drive the larger part of that population out, and then you set up a state on most of what was, you know, the Palestine Mandate, uh, the State of Israel, uh, after the 1948 war, uh, in which the dispossessed and expelled populations are not allowed to return, and their property is expropriated, and Jewish citizens of that new state get some rights that the Arabs who remain behind and become citizens do not have. You're talking about an exclusionary and discriminatory system where anyone who is Jewish has certain rights that anyone who is not does not have. And that's what I mean by exclusionary. And that's the case with Israel to this day. It's, uh, the, the propagandists for Israel will say it's a Jewish and democratic state. Well, you can't be, a, you can't be in a state which overtly proclaims the supremacy and, and exclusive rights of its Jewish population at the expense of what is now a 20% Arab majority, a minority inside Israel, and at the same time say that it's fully democratic. It's, it can't be. And it's certainly not democratic because it rules over millions of other Palestinians in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip who don't have citizenship and in fact don't have any rights at all. Uh, What kind of democratic state has ruled for 56 years over a population in the occupied territories uh, that has literally no rights, no control over the decisions that are made by an Israeli government, which decides what it does with them through a military rule that has lasted for, uh, as I've said, for 56 years.
0: So another example of that would be uh, this idea of juridical and imperialism, if you will. And I think there's something like over 65 Israeli laws, including many land laws that you referred to, that actually do not apply to Palestinians today inside the 1948 territories. Um, And with other examples, such as the Israeli settlers living in the 67 territories, are tried under Israeli civilian courts. While Palestinians are tried under military courts, and it again, exactly. thinking of colonial times here in the states, and even up into, you know, the 20th century here in the states, when indigenous peoples, um, you know, encounter settler colonial law, it is the colonial law that takes precedent and still does in many ways today. Marcus, uh,
1: Mr. Khalidi, the, the, in your the book, you ended up in a very firm particular position. And you talked about the ethnic cleansing. You talked about the, the law, like Larry suggested. You talked about inequality and right. injustice within the areas. You talked about the ending of the book. And about any negotiations, the United States needs to be step aside because of the fact that they, they go and the history shows aside uh, as Israel's State in any negotiations, but about how two party the inside as well as the Israelis as well as the Palestinians, the, the challenge for them is to talk and is to go from a situation of not armed struggle to the situation in the negotiations. Please talk about that for the end of the book, and then I want to get to the issue of this New York editorial. Uh, that uh, uh, Brett Steppens about this settler sort of colonialism, but please talk about the end of the book. Some of the, so quote-unquote, I know it's difficult, but the, your summation of where we need to go at this point.
2: Right. Well, that's a hard question, where we need to go at this point. Uh, a, a couple things. Uh, first of all, as I argue in the book, no solution that does not give absolutely equal rights and that recognizes and that doesn't recognize Historical injustice is going to is going to fly. It won't be sustainable. It won't last. It won't work. And it's unjust and it's immoral. Uh, you have to accept that a, a historical injustice has been done to the Palestinian people. You have to accept the settler colonial origins of Israel. You have to accept that even though uh, I mean, uh, you have to also accept that there are two peoples there. Palestinians have to accept that there's now an Israeli people, and Israelis have to accept that there's a Palestinian people, and that has to go with absolutely equal rights. Any solution which says we'll have an Israeli state that has this, this, and this, and we'll have a Palestinian state that has less, less than this, this, and this, that's not, that's not just, and it's not gonna work. It's not gonna last, it's not sustainable. There have to be absolutely equal rights, whether we're talking about a two-state solution, a one-state solution, a binational state, a cantonal solution, there's all kinds of possibilities. Um, a regional confederation, but it, that, whatever solution ends up being adopted uh, has to involve absolutely equal rights, national rights, political rights, civil rights, human rights, property rights, religious rights, all of those have to be absolutely equal. So that's the first thing. The second thing is you cannot have a negotiation between two parties where one party chooses the other side's negotiators. That has been the case up till now. Hmm. Um, I was involved in negotiations in Madrid after the Madrid peace conference where the Israelis decided who could and couldn't be on the Palestinian delegation. Well, if it were up to me, there were a lot of war criminals. I wouldn't allow to be on the Israeli delegation. But it's not not up to me to choose who negotiates for Israel. But it is is an American and Israeli prerogative to say this group is excluded. This person is excluded. We will speak to this person and only this person. So you can't have that kind of negotiation. You have to have a selection by each side of its own representatives, whether you like them or not whether you consider they have blood on their hands or not.
0: And we want to remind listeners, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Palestinian scholar and activist, Dr. Rashid Khalidi, on From Here to There, Past and Present, the legacy of settler colonial violence perpetrated against Native American nations to Israelis' occupation and war on Palestine. And now back to the interview.
2: Most of the people that we negotiated with many of the people, I should say, that we negotiated with and the Palestinians have negotiated with are are former generals. Hmm. And they have blood on their hands, and the Palestinians sit down with them. Uh, That's the only way you can get anywhere if you deal with the people who have power and who have been involved uh, militarily or politically or whatever it may be. That's the way in which ultimately a resolution was arrived at in Ireland. That's the way a resolution was ultimately arrived at in South Africa. Uh, They didn't just sit down with the people whom the South Africans considered, you know, their favorite South African uh, uh, native, native and indigenous peoples, they sat down with the representatives chosen by the South Africans, the ANC, who were, among other things, a military group that carried out all kinds of violent resistance to apartheid. Similarly in Ireland, the Irish won their independence in 1921 of the Irish Free State uh, through a negotiation that involved the Irish Republican Army, the people who had fought the British. Um, and that's the same thing that happened in the in the 1998 uh, Good Friday agreements. The British didn't pick the the, the representatives of the Irish. The IRA uh, sent the people it chose uh, to negotiate, and that's how it's going to have to be. The last thing is you cannot have as the mediator, the enabler, the ally, the strongest supporter of one of the parties as supposedly the honest broker or the mediator. The United States cannot play that role. Is the United States going to have to be involved in a negotiation? Yes, but I've always argued it should be sitting on the other side of the table with the Israelis, which is where they belong, because they, without the United States' support, Israel would not be able to do what it does. Uh, this is, this is, this is a, a central to my way of thinking. A, anybody but the United States would be a better uh, a, a third party, a better mediator, a better honest broker. So I think all of those are essential. Where, how we get to that wonderful situation well, we could have a negotiation, I really don't know. Uh, we're not there right now, unfortunately. Thank you very much. I,
1: uh, uh, Larry and I, uh, of editorials came out in the New York Times about settler colonial, colonialism needs mm-hmm. to be, why not get rid of settler, uh, settler colonialism? And then the, the author an op-ed in New York Times went in all different directions about O tone and about well it's that's uh, American citizens of non-native descent these well this article goes in, in this nonsensical argument but yet the same parallels with settler colonialism and the subject matter of the, the Palestinians as a people never got addressed as a people With the negotiations, the primary point that you point out in the book, but also with colonialism within North America, many of the indigenous nations, and Larry and I constantly bring this up, no treaty rights have been implemented. Exactly. Whether it be the the Lakotas, whether it be the Chumash, whether it be different, I don't know how many hundreds of treaties that never been implemented within the united states alone and then this the parallels are extraordinary we wanted to bring right. them up back fact, that, that right. hilarious question or some comments the eastern united states especially the western united states about the 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 rebellion the Chumash here the the modok wars the kawiyas and and different the Hashimam, the people who resisted the mission system all that stuff and even back east, Larry, in Larry, I know I has some comments on. But the parallels are so alarming, you know, that that I think we want to bring it up in the sense of educating people, in this, in the sense of they have to really understand the history of this land, the history of that land over there, and the realizing the atrocities, and realizing what the Pope even mentioned as not only ethnic cleansing but the genocide. Of both areas, and that needs to exactly. be
2: addressed. Well, I think you're right. The parallels are absolutely striking. I mean, the number of agreements that were negotiated be, between the time that we went to Madrid in 1991 uh, into the 2000s and that have never been implemented by Israel is just striking. I mean, obviously, <laughs> the history here goes back hundreds of years. We're talking, you know, from the 17th century right up until the 20th century. Uh, in the case of Palestine, it's only a few de- a couple of decades, but the parallels are absolutely striking. Um, agreements are made that are never, never implemented. Um, there's supposed to be a corridor between the West Bank and Gaza Strip, never implemented. There were supposed to be Israeli withdrawals, never implemented. I mean, I could go on and on and on about the terms of what I I to have been very bad agreements. I would never have accepted those agreements if were up to me, but the PLO it did accept them. Um, in the 1990s and into the early 2000s, never implemented on the Israeli side. Um, and so I think that you're absolutely right. The parallels are, are completely striking. And it, they're, they're, the, the, this article that you're talking about by Brett Stevens um, in the New York Times, it's a really quite shameful piece because, I mean, how can you deny the settler colonial origins of this American project? It's, not, it's impossible to deny it. And I, I would argue you can't deny the settler colonial origins of the Zionist Project. They called it colonial. I mean, one of the big land purchase agencies, one of the agencies that was charged with acquiring lands for the Zionist Project called itself the Jewish Colonization Agency. Okay? That's not some anti-Semitic slur by some fanatical Arab professor sitting in an Ivy League university. That's what they called themselves. And it existed up until 1958 this institution. Later on, it called itself the Palestine Jewish Colonization Agency. Okay, So the colonial nature of this process and the parallels with settler colonialism in Algeria or Ireland or, or, or North America or Australasia are undeniable. And you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a fundamentally dishonest piece by Brett Stevens in The New York Times in which he elides all kinds of important things. You have to accept that this is the truth of history. It, it doesn't necessarily tell you what you do with that truth, but you have to start from there. If you want to get somewhere honest, you want to get somewhere just, and you want to get somewhere moral, uh, what it means in terms of the relationship between the settler population and between the indigenous population is a, is a, is a matter to be decided over time and in a different ways in different places. In Ireland, it's hopefully going to be decided in one way. In South Africa, it's been decided in another way. In Palestine, God knows how it will be decided. But in this, and in this country, God knows how it will be decided. It's, it's, not, it's not a closed book is the point. But you cannot start by denying reality and history. And that's what, and that's what all of these deniers of what were genocidal processes, of what were processes of ethnic cleansing, that, that were absolutely necessary and central to the settler colonial processes, uh, the settler colonial you know, projects, um, that's what they're doing. And that's just unacceptable. And that's not a way to, to get to a better future, which is presumably what we all want.
0: Let me ask uh, the final question, if you don't mind. And thank you for uh, for your time. Um, you know, one of the things in, in Marcus and I were talking about this is that in, again, drawing those parallels and looking at what's been transpiring and leading up to Palestine and and just the kind of devastation and the understanding that, uh, you know, indigenous peoples are connected to the land. And so, you know, for Palestinians are connected to the land and just given the right. legacy of scorched earth policies of the land to the, you know, the burning of, you know, olive trees to other, you know, plants and animals um, that Palestinians are connected to and have that relationship and given the mass displacement and the and the ongoing genocide what will it mean to be palestinian in moving forward
2: well there's gonna have to be a lot of healing yeah. but i think there has to be recognition of history there actually has to be atonement also um, you know we're nowhere near that in north america um obviously but but we're also nowhere near that unfortunately in Palestine. Um, you can look at places where there have been attempts at restorative justice, where there have been attempts to deal with the kind of violence that you're talking about, not just violence to people, not just not just genocide or ethnic cleansing but or, or war crimes, but the kind of violence you're talking about to the land, to the environment, to the relationship of people to their lands. Um, you, you talk about olive trees. I mean, olive, olive trees can live for hundreds of years. Mm. And they're kind of a symbol of the rootedness of the Palestinian people uh, in their land. And the attacks on them are really an attempt to deny that very rootedness. Um, and it's uh, it, it attacks by these uh, uh, fanatical armed settlers inside the occupied territories. Um, and it's the kind of thing that, that uh, uh, indicates how difficult this is going to be. We really have to uh, a lot has to change, it, not just in Israel, uh, and also in Palestine. A lot of a lot of ideas have to change uh, among both peoples, the Palestinians, but especially the Israelis. But also in this country, um, there are so many false images. Hmm. Uh, we ha- we have false images of our own history as yeah. in, the, in the United States, but also of the connection to Israel and of what Israel is like and what this conflict is like. I hope that the book this, my book, Hundred Years War on Palestine. I hope that it helps to correct uh, some of these false images.
1: Well, I'd like to thank Rashid Khalidi. I will call you the ambassador of the Palestinian peoples, your family and the history. Thank you very much for joining us on this vital discussion. Uh, hopefully we can have further discussions because obviously this is not, this subject matter is gonna go disappear. But we want to thank you very much for joining us here on the
2: American Indian Airwaves. It was a privilege. It was, a, it was an honor. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. The moment of silence is over.
0: And that was Dr. Rashid Khalidi, who is the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies. In the history department at Columbia University, and is the editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies. He's the author of over 10 publications, including his most recent book, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, 1917 to 2017. That concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guest for the hour, Dr. Rashid Khalidi. A special thank you to our musical guest Aragon Star, Kupa Aina, the various artists from Middle Eastern and North African countries, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studios of Burnt Swamp Studios in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. And the blood never comes clean from the guilty minds Nor the hands
2: that hold the chains After all the lies
1: and the empty promises We take a stand on the land that you tried to bury us For all the pain and all the suffering We
2: take a stand We take a stand We sleep caged against our fear We've been torn Wearing our souls on a thread
1: The moment of silence is over